Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by The Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209. Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are looking forward, as always today, to visiting with you about things that are of interest to you in your garden and landscape. There's plenty to talk about today. Uh, I guess we're still in what's called winter here, but uh, our temperatures typically are so mild that gardening continues all year. You know, we occasionally have a, a day where we hole up inside, but uh, it's nice being this far south in the country. Of course, we we might have a second opinion of that when summer arrives, but uh, for now we're going to enjoy the fact that We've got weather through the winter, really, that allows us to be outside even uh, on most days, enjoying the landscape and the garden. Uh, if you've got leaves that have fallen on your, your lawn, you want to go ahead and get those uh, either mulched into the lawn with a good mulching mower or picked up and used as mulch around the landscape. Leaves are a valuable source of uh, free mulch. It sits out at the curbside as your neighbors put theirs out there. Uh, and we hope that you're recycling yours. You know about 75% of the nutrients that a tree takes up during the year are in its leaves. And that's always kind of catches people off guard, thinking, well, what about the twigs and the branches and the trunk and all that? Well, that does grow in size, but uh, the tissues, the woody tissues in the interior of the woody parts of a tree, uh, there's a lot of carbon there, of course, but uh, the nutrient concentration isn't as high as it is out in the leaves. When I say nutrients, I'm talking about nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, sulfur, sodium, iron, zinc, all of those kinds of things that uh, we're interested in providing for our plants. Uh, and the interesting thing about it is that uh, because those leaves are so valuable, uh, they have multiple uses and really should be kept at your landscape. And I know a lot of people like to clean up and get rid of them, kind of like you sweep and throw out the trash, but not in the landscape. Think about how nature recycles its organic matter. In the forest, leaves fall to the floor of the forest. New leaves fall on them the following year. And now covered by more leaves, those old leaves begin to decompose. Uh, it's moist under there, and uh, there's a lot of microbial activity. And it's sort of like from the top down to the soil, you see uh, fresh or dry leaves uh, on top, and then leaves that are starting to moisten and decompose into what we call uh, leaf mold. At, uh, leaf mold, I guess the best way I describe it is don't think of it like bread mold. We're not talking about that kind of mold. It's more of a British term, I guess. That's usually where I hear it used. But leaf mold is 
kind of a chocolatey brown leaf that is well on way to decomposing. Uh, you can still look at it and see, oh, that that's a leaf. that was a leaf. Uh, you can see what it was, but it crumbles apart real easily. And then the final stage, uh, well, the, the next stage would be actual compost itself, the, the decomposed material where you can't really discern what it was very well. And that's happening down on the soil surface. Earthworms are coming up and they're pulling organic matter down into their tunnels, especially leaves. Uh, and they're benefiting uh, from that as well as benefiting our soil. Uh, and all the microbial activity, the release of nutrients, the mulching, the protection from rainfall so we don't get erosion and crusting, all of that is why we keep saying mulch, mulch, mulch. It moderates soil temperature in the hot summer and the cold winter. And uh, it's just a valuable thing. And the amazing part about it is you get a lot of it free in your neighborhood. And so I encourage people to do that. Now, if you put out large leaves that haven't been broken up at all, they tend to blow around. And so what we usually say is, well, run over it with your lawnmower a time or two. Uh, break it up. If you're fortunate enough to have a leaf shredder or grinder, uh, you can fire up and, and really turn it into something uh, unique uh, and use that as mulch. But don't throw that away. Take advantage of it. It's free, natural, organic fertilizer uh, and mulch material available. And when I say it's fertilizer, I don't mean it's the concentration of something that we would uh, officially label as fertilizer, very low concentration, but it has nutrients like fertilizer does. And it, over time, uh, mulching and, and year after year, you're going to get a release of nutrients that's significant for your, your gardens and, and your lawns, I mean your uh, flower beds and things. Uh, I like to uh, just uh, remember that that's how nature does it, and that's a good way to go about it. And if you need something supplemented, we can always do that, right, by adding fertilizer. If you're putting in a new garden area, you want to get a soil test done, you can go online to soiltesting, one word, dot T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. And uh, the, the forms are available there, the submission forms. You want to choose the one that says urban soil test. And that doesn't mean you have to live in a giant city. It just means you're, you're not looking at a farm or a, a pasture. You're looking at your yard, your flower beds and gardens. And you can, on that form, tell it, well, this is my rose bushes or this is my vegetable garden uh, as you're having them analyze it. And they give you the results. If you're here locally in the Bryan College Station area, you can drop it off at the lab or you can mail it to them. All that information is on the, on the soil test form you download. Follow the instructions carefully because the way you take a soil test determines the, how beneficial it's going to be to you when the results come in. The lab will tell you what is in the sample you send them. But the key is, does the sample you send them reflect what's in your, your lawn? So if you just scoop a little soil out of the top inch or two and put that in the lab, you're, you are going to get a different result than if you dig a hole six inches deep and take some out of the bottom of the hole. And uh, the ideal way is to have a even profile um, from the top of the soil down six inches deep. So you have an equal amount of soil inch by inch as you go down. Of course, we're doing it in a number of areas, not just one spot. That may be where the family pet paused last fall, and that would cause a inaccurate reading. Uh, like I said, the soil lab will tell you what's in the sample, but that would not be representative of your whole yard. 
Uh, and so you want to you want to take a, a mix of samples uh, and send it in, and that's a composite that gives the best, most accurate uh, overall picture that we need when we're going forward in fertilizing. Then you can mix in what you need. Maybe the pH has to go up or down. Uh, maybe the uh, nutrient content of one or another nutrients is too low and needs some needs to be added. Do all that before you plant, if at all possible, uh, for best results. Well, let's go to the phones. Our phone number, which I should have given out at the beginning of the show, is 979-845-5689. And you can also email me at gardensuccess at T-A-M-U dot edu. Uh, we answer the garden success emails on the show. I don't answer those during the week, uh, but when I come in for the show, we do. So uh, if it's during the week, you can also email me at the AgriLife Extension Office here in Brazos County. Let's go to the phones now and talk to Phyllis. Hello, Phyllis. Hi. Hi. Skip. Um, I have a very large area that is in ground cover and the ground cover is um, a vine, and it has a yellow daisy on it. And uh, this is the first time the freeze has gotten it. And um, I can see some green down at the bottom of these brown stuff. And should I scalp it, and when should I do it? Well, um, I'm going to guess that what you have is Wedelia. Uh, that's the, the only thing that comes to mind as a yellow daisy ground cover. Uh, it's a very vigorous ground cover, by the way, too. Yes. Uh, um, so if it froze back, you want to cut it back and get all the dead out of there. Uh, that's a ground cover that, you know, it's not having suckers come up everywhere, so it's not so much coming from underground as it is coming from above the ground. Uh, and so you wouldn't want to strip it down to the soil, uh, but you cut back the dead, the top growth, and it's so fast growing that once the weather warms up, it's going to send out a lot of new growth that'll cover all that up uh, that, that you've taken away or that may be left not so attractive. Uh, but Wedelia is a, is a easy and, and, and a fast grower. Like I said, the only challenge is getting it to understand there's such a thing as a line in the landscape where you do and don't want it to grow. <laughs> All right. Um, well, you, I was going to take a weed eater and to mm -hmm. it, but uh, should I do so? I mean, uh, it's so big that yeah. uh, nobody can get the shears and mm -hmm. cut it. Yeah. You know, Phyllis, I've never tried cutting Wedelia back, but I know how it grows. And my concern with a weed eater is that's a lot of long, viney strands. And I just think they're going to get yanked and whipped around by the weed eater. And it may be a little challenging, but you can give it a try and see how it works. I don't know. I might even, um, that's a good question. I might even try maybe a mower set on really high and see how that does. That would also chop it up and let it fall to the ground to cover up the soil a little bit because after the pruning there's going to be light coming through it and when light comes through then weeds are encouraged to grow um, so that I don't know other than other than that how you would you would cut Wedelia back because you're right it, it if it's a large area that's a lot of time on your hands and knees and you may be saying things about me in my absence while you're out there doing that if I told you to go do it by hand right <laughs> 
I would just have to forget it. Um, <laughs> so it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was really beautiful. And um, so is it the first time that uh, the cold has gotten it so mm-hmm. badly? Yeah. And uh, Yeah. I, I don't know. I... I think I, if it were my yard, I would probably look at it and see the extent of it. And if it isn't severe, the ugliness and the amount of dead growth that's left, uh, if it's minor, I, w- I would just let it grow and cover it up. But otherwise, I would cut it back. And if you can get back close, uh, maybe a few inches out of the where it comes out of the ground, it's going to come back un- unless... It killed the whole plant, and we just didn't have the kind of weather that should have killed that whole plant. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, we'll experiment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a. Uh, it's interesting. It, how long have you had the Wedelia? Oh, uh, partially. Uh, I've had it over twenty years. Oh wow. Okay. But um, I had some. Uh, wax myrtle taken out mm-hmm. and so it covered the area that the wax myrtle was in and so uh, it's been uh, like this uh, complete ground cover mm-hmm. in this area probably two years mm-hmm. okay and did it survive last winter yes it did uh-huh. Well, I, I suspect that last winter uh, the the snow cover helped it a lot because it went too cold for Wedelia last summer, last winter. Uh, we're, we're, I think it's an 8B plant, zone 8B, and, and so that's us. And so normally it, it's, a, it's hardy and fine here. But dieback is, is not unusual, especially when we get a good cold snap. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for the call. You're welcome. Right. Bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I was just talking about tree leaves, their value as a mulch to make compost, to build soil. Uh, one thing, I want, a couple more things I want to say is you want to get them off the lawn. Uh, that's to leave leaves sitting on the lawn all winter is is essentially shading the lawn out. Now St. Augustine doesn't go dormant like your um, uh, red oak tree would go dormant or something something along those lines. What it what it does is it just slows growth and and becomes almost inactive completely. But uh, unless we've had a really good hard freeze that has burned off almost all the green stuff. There's usually some green down in there, and during the winter time, that deciduous tree that's been shading it all year is the leaves are gone, and some sunlight can come through. And because we do have mild weather in the winter, uh, periods in the 70s even, uh, it can gather a little bit of sun, maybe make a little bit of carbohydrates, and be better for it. And so to leave it smothered in leaves is not good and, and can cause an increased dieback. Uh, on your lawn. So get the leaves off of there. The other thing that we want to, um, I want to mention is when you are mulching, uh, and I had never realized that people did this, uh, uh, but I just talked to someone recently who 
would mulch and then when they needed to mulch again they would take all the old mulch out and put fresh mulch in. Well the forest doesn't do that. Uh, in fact the old mulch is your friend because it's decomposing and it's building that surface organic matter and uh, a zone where roots are really happy to get up close to the surface because it stays moist and it's very rich and to thrive. That doesn't mean all the roots move up. You still have deeper, deeper roots but uh, it to leave the old mulch and just add fresh mulch on top. That's what nature does and that's what we should do. Uh, and you only need to add mulch when it gets a little bit thin because then the light comes through and you know we're wanting it primarily we want mulch to to deter weeds but we also want it to look good. We also want it to uh, protect from erosion and crusting of the soil and to moderate soil temperature. Uh, but uh, you can just add fresh mulch to the top when that happens. Well, let's go back to the phones now and talk to Stacy. Hello, Stacy. Hi, Skip. Um, I have a few questions if you have a few minutes. You bet. Um, so we're talking about mulch. Does it matter what kind of, like, leaves of what trees? I know, like, black walnuts usually supposedly not, but, like, oak trees. Can you just use oak trees leaves? Yeah, that's a that's a mulch? good question. And I and I, it gives me a chance to, to say some things about it that, that I think people uh, need to be aware of. Number one, if you think about the forest uh, or wherever any species of tree grows naturally, it mulches itself with its own leaves. And so uh, even a, uh, trees that have a very waxy, slow to decompose leaf, such as pine trees, uh, live oak, uh, magnolia, southern magnolia, uh, those leaves eventually do decay and they they fall apart. By the way, when you chop them up before putting them down as mulch, uh, they they decompose even faster. You're at increasing that surface area where the microbes can get to them. Uh, but you can use any kind. Black walnut, I, I would need to look again, but I know that uh, black walnuts produce juglone from their roots which inhibits the growth of some plants, not all, but some plants uh, are inhibited by the roots of, the, of, of that. I don't think the juglone levels in the leaves are that high, but I would check before I'd say for sure. Uh, but I, I wouldn't go seek black walnut leaves to put in a, in a mulch, but I, I'd, it may be fine to use them, especially depending on the particular plant you want. I know tomatoes and grapes are, are very sensitive to the juglone, but not all plants are. But in general, uh, any kind of leaves you want to use are just fine. And, and I actually think it's even better to kind of have a mix of leaves because you're bringing in, uh, you know, different, some leaves are very rapidly going to decompose, some are a little bit slower, uh, and maybe each of those trees took up a little bit different levels of nutrients, not vastly different, but somewhat different. Yeah, I mainly have post oak and a couple live oaks and then tallow and stuff like that, so nothing... Yeah, no, I don't have any black walnut, but I was just like, I've been collecting them and putting them in bags, and I'm like, I need to use this as a mulch. Yeah, and I was like, when am I going to use this as my garden versus buying the wood mulch? <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. And and Stacey, every year I I gather a bunch of leaves. It's so nice for all the neighbors to put them out at the curbside uh, for you. Um, but I grind mine up a little bit, and then I can get you know maybe two bags of leaves into one bag, uh, and, and and put those as almost a stockpile, if you will. Uh, somewhere that where when it comes time for June, July, and August, I still need leaves, and they're not falling off the tree at that time. And so um, by grinding them up, you 
decrease the volume and it makes you able to store. Some people put a big wire ring, a, you know, a wire fencing and a ring with small openings and they just fill that with their leaves and that's mm -hmm. their stockpile. If you're out in the country, that's okay. If you're, uh, it's probably the homeowners association in town wouldn't want you to do that in the front yard, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, the main reason I called is I called a, uh, a few months back, I think in this late summer, and I had a peach tree that was showing a lot of like the sap coming out of it. And mm -hmm. I thought it was like borers or something. So I figured it, I would just cut it this winter, be done with it. Well, I was looking at my peach trees getting ready to prune. And I was like, well, only one of the scaffold branches looks like it's dead and died back. The other two have, you know, not new as in budding out yet, but that, you know, you get a nice waxing mm -hmm. look on the, on the things. I was like, well, it's still alive. Or yeah. I wasn't sure I had bought a new tree to replace it, but I wasn't sure if I should just still plan on cutting it or maybe it might be okay to keep it for another year or two. Uh, yeah, that it, it's impossible for me to tell you for yeah. sure, uh, but uh, I would give it a little bit of time and watch, and in the meantime, I would take a knife and scrape back behind the sap just a little bit to okay. see is it just a discolored, maybe dead bark area right around that spot, or is there a hole? And if there's a hole, then it's a borer. And the two biggest borers for your peaches here are the peach tree borer, which attacks primarily in the lower trunk area, and the lesser peach tree borer, which attacks the scaffold limbs up higher. Uh, two different borers, uh, and uh, there's information online from A&M AgriLife that uh, tells how to control them. Depending on which one you have, the approach would be a little different. But that would it be a It started concern. on the trunk and then kind of worked its way up this one scaffold branch. Like I just noticed like the little sap in okay. like multiple spots on this one. I was like, well, yeah. I, I kind of assumed that would be a bore. Well, it, it, it could be that both are active. Uh, that would be a possibility. And the third all thing, the other trees are fine. It's just that one tree. Okay. The third thing is, are cankers. And, and you get diseases that affect the bark tissues. And whenever you wound the peach, it produces that sap and it mm -hmm. pushes the sap out. So it, it could be different things wounding it from an, the insects I mentioned to a disease. And uh, by scraping it back, you determine which it is. The cankers are not good, and they're usually a sign that that's a weakened tree for some reason or another. Uh, I would also uh, just uh, uh, make sure that w when you're taking care of the trees, you, you uh, do most of your pruning in the winter. Uh, and uh, when you do need to prune during the year, it wouldn't hurt to uh, sterilize those pruners as you go from tree to tree. Uh, so that if it were something like a canker, you're not uh, likely to spread it to the next tree. Well, I was thinking of pruning this weekend since the weather was supposed to be nice. Okay. And we're in February, so I didn't know with that cold coming in maybe next week, the end of next week again. At, at this late in the season, there's no problem with pruning. Um, yeah. you, you know, if you want to wait until the next cold spell's done, that's fine. But we, we do want to get our pruning done before the tree starts pushing out buds. And depending on your variety of peach, that could be at different times as we go into spring. I have different varieties, so it is different times. I've been meaning to do it, but it's been every weekend's been bad weather. So yeah, yeah. Weekend. Well, go for it. Uh, I don't, in general, we don't say you need to sterilize pruners between cuts. But I know since we're talking about this, you said at one tree that has this problem, I'd save that tree to last to prune. Right just for that reason. And as far as sterilizing them, they're kind of probably the simplest thing is uh, to just use Lysol spray or some other okay. disinfectant spray like that. There are other options that have their drawbacks, but uh, Lysol sprayed on it 
would would kill the germs, if you will, and make it a nice clean cut. Okay, and then I have one last question. I have a bunch that I started from seed, like broccoli transplants and cabbage. They're not totally tall, but they need to come out of their transplants. They're getting kind of that point. Yes. But now they're talking about, you know, low mid-20s again next Thursday and Friday. Should okay. I try to hold off another week, or I, should I just put them in the ground and try to, like, put some straw over them? Or I, I would – my first answer would be hold off. Uh, and okay. you can you can bump them up to a larger. Are they in the little tiny six packs or what size container? Um, a little smaller than a six pack. It's like a forty cell. Okay. Actually, a forty. Okay. So well, that's yeah, that's pretty it's good size. You you could bump. Thing. I don't know how many you have, but if it's not too many, you could bump them up to a four inch pot and let them keep growing in that. Start to put their roots out in it. Uh, if you're going to plant them within a week, that's probably not necessary. Uh, but just remember when you pull them out, if they've been in there a little long, the roots are going to be really tight wadded up and kind of put them in some water. Sometimes I'll just throw mine in a bucket of water and let them soak and then kind of tease the roots apart a little bit before planting them. That's not essential. And a lot of gardeners listening are going, my goodness, I never do that. But uh, that may help establishing with a plant that is way too root bound. So when you when you yeah, pull them out, maybe yeah, looking at the long-term forecast, it's like the sixth might be my next best option. Okay. Now, the <laughs> the, the second option, I, that one was hold on to them. Uh, right. The next would be go ahead and plant them as soon as possible. But well, it would be, be like tomorrow or Saturday. Okay, and be, but be ready to cover them when, when it comes time for the freeze. If you... Uh, there's a lot of ways to cover. Uh, usually you want some kind of support to keep the cover off the plants because if it's plastic, that's not good, touching the leaves. Um, and if it's... I, ha I have frost cloth. It's just trying to keep it down okay. and not get blown away by the wind is the hardest part. So I'm just actually, I have some stars and or the leaves. I can just cover them if the leaves don't get blown away. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, you could mulch heavily all around them enough to where, you know, almost the mulch is helping hold them up. Uh, but I, I usually stick something in the ground. I, I use PVC pipe, half-inch PVC, and make a hoop out of it and just go down the row that way. But you, anything that holds them up a little bit um, would, would do just fine. And that's just an extra measure of caution. So if we were going to get a freeze that would damage them, uh, underneath there, they're not going to have that problem. And if it's truly frost cloth and not just the insect protective covers that oh, are thinner. Oh, it's frost cloth. Yeah. It's Dagrabon. Okay. Well, if it's a heavier cloth like that, then that should be that should be adequate. So if you've got access to that, I change my first answer and say, go ahead and plant them. Okay. I just got to figure out how to keep that frost cloth on the ground and not be blown off. You know, uh, yeah, sometimes. Bricks you, and stuff. Yeah, bricks, uh, sticks. But uh, I, I often will just bury the edge a little bit in the soil. Okay. And uh, it's, I think that's going to do probably uh, is good it's a little dirty but that stuff washes off you know well and i figure the onions should be probably fine probably fine yeah i've been surprised they didn't like that first that first freeze got them pretty good but yeah the last one wasn't too bad yeah i had i had kale that the first freeze burned really bad and it was an older plant it kind of surprised me i didn't expect that, oh i lost but... all my yeah i lost all my cabbage transplants from that so i restarted these Back mm -hmm. at the beginning, to you know, I had a few started, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm starting some more. I have some celery and stuff that's not ready to come out. That'll just go in the garage for a couple of days or something, or in the house. Right, <laughs> right. Well, and uh, it, I don't know how many days. I haven't looked at the weather, but if you could wait until later in that day to throw the cover over them, 
it gives the sun time to warm the soil. And so that'd be a time when you'd pull the mulch back, let, let them have whatever sunlight we have to warm up the soil a little more, and then when you cover it, you've got that heat sink underneath that's going to do the trick. Yeah, it's probably supposed to rain. <laughs> probably. <laughs> yeah, so I have to do it like Tuesday and then rain on Wednesday and then Wednesday night. You know, it's like one of those things where then it's just like, all right. I'm, I'm still I'm still leaning towards maybe just keeping them one more week. Okay. Or them a little well, <laughs> they're not a one size fits all, so anything no, you do like not. that would be fine. So. Uh, have you ever heard of anyone using wool for mulch, like off the sheep? <laughs> I never have. Okay. Uh, but but curious. we don't live in in big sheep country, so it's not like there's a ton of that uh, laying around. Uh, I just have extra wool. I raise sheep, and I have extra wool from like three years ago that I need to do something with. But there's too much. We call uh, like hay in it to like pick it all the little bits of hay out to get it processed. So I was oh like, yeah, oh, I just use it as a mulch, especially on well, the blackberries. You could, and it, but it would not decompose. Uh, well, it eventually, but very, very, very slowly. But, oh. but I'm thinking something like under blackberry plants or something that you don't aren't going to move or yeah. anything like that. You could do that. Uh, it would allow moisture through even when it matted up over time which it would do mm -hmm. uh the I don't, I don't see okay. a problem with doing it other than initially some may want to blow around a little bit on you uh but maybe the the fact that it's not going to decompose and i always think a mulch is something that's helping improve my soil because i leave it there uh but well, i read one thing it's like a one one three fertilizer or one three one it's like it actually does decompose after like three to four years it it does but it it take it basically that's going to take uh soil fungi to to do, do the breakdown the other decomposers okay. bacteria and actinomycetes they're they're probably not going to be able to handle hair uh, uh and being able to decompose but that's just okay. academic. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Take a picture and send it to me if you do. That I don't have a picture okay. of wool mulch. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kip. Bye-bye. Uh, bye. All right. Our phone number, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Well, let's talk about what we do plant now. Um, now, what I'm going to say is, of course, um, the caveat is is what Stacy just talked about, and a freeze coming up. Uh, so you wouldn't want to, just because it's a time to plant something, uh, you may want to just hold off and give it one more week before you plant. That's not going to be a big deal. Uh, when you look at our, our vegetable planting date chart, uh, by the way, which you can find at b um, uh, com brazosmg.com i'm gonna check that i always get confused and i go to that site a thousand times uh, but uh, brazosmg.com has the master gardeners information put a lot of information on there and the um, uh, yeah it's brazosmg.com there's a section on gardening in the brazos valley and then underneath that is uh, information on edibles and underneath that is our vegetable garden planting date chart and that is a really helpful uh, guide. It's colorful and it, it, it's, it's made for this area. So if you're listening from out of the area, uh, when I was in Houston, we made one down there that's available on their website. If you're down Harris County level, I-10 uh, level. Uh, and if you're further north, then you would need to adjust things accordingly. Uh, but this is one that I think that will be very helpful for you. And, and if you look at it, you know, waiting a week to plant something is not going to be a really big deal. 
Uh, as we get to the end of January, we're still planting uh, artichoke plants or the dormant crowns. The, they dig them up and then reset them like you would a bare root fruit tree or, or a bare root rose. Uh, and the asparagus dormant crowns are planted in January and February. Uh, we're entering uh, time for planting beets and Swiss chard. That's a little early. Those are not our most cold hardy vegetables, but we can begin to plant those. Uh, they have a little bit of cold hardiness, but not, not much. Um, all the blue-leafed vegetables, we call them cruciferous crops. Uh, and fun uh, tidbit of gardening trivia. Why do we call coal crops or, or broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, uh, kale, collards? Why do we call those cruciferous crops? Well, the reason is, if you look at their blooms, they have four petals that make a cross, cruciform. The, the blooms are cruciform, and that's why they're called cruciferous crops. Uh, they're very, very healthy, good for, good for us to be eating, as are most vegetables. Uh, very, very nutrient-packed. Uh, and those are all planted, ideally, uh, from the middle of January on, in most cases, through February, but at least through the middle of February for the best planting dates. And uh, that would be all the ones that I just mentioned. Uh, some of the root crops, uh, carrots and radishes and turnips, for example, we start to plant those uh, as we get to the end of January and begin, especially get into early February. And so those are all things that, uh, it, you know, it's time to go ahead and, and get those in if you haven't already. If you like uh, the cool season peas, the true peas, that would be English peas, snow peas, sugar snap type peas. The, now is the prime time to get those planted. If they come up and we get one of those really hard freezes, cover them up just to protect them, but they're pretty hardy plants. Uh, but the blooms and the pods are not as hardy. Uh, but they, we grow them now, and the reason is they need to, you need to choose varieties that um, reach harvest in about, not over 60, 62 days if possible. Uh, if they take too long, the problem is that they they end up um, not harvesting before the weather heats up. And when the weather gets hot, those peas are very unhappy, and the quality of what you harvest is not as good. Uh, so we're, we're kind of set between trying to wait long enough to plant them where they're not going to get frozen five times trying to grow, and on the other hand, not have them harvesting too late because it gets hot. And so we choose fast varieties, and we plant them now in order to get that done. Let's go to the phones, the number 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Ken. Hello, Ken. Hello, hello. I just have a quick question okay. um, I, about the timing of shearing back uh, my salvia bushes that I have in the landscape. Uh -huh. I, 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 I'm concerned that if I do it too early, it might stimulate budding on those things and then, you know, uh, have freezing problems if we go to late frost. Yeah, that's a good observation, Ken. Um, well, how, do you, how, do you, how do you time that? <laughs> you know, I see people doing that kind of thing all winter. Uh, and But your point is well taken, that if, if you cut any plant back and then you have weather that's mild, according to that plant's thermometer opinions, uh, it'll begin to regrow. That's the response to pruning. Uh, if it stays cold, it's not going to begin to regrow. 
But if we, after this freeze coming up, had, you know, two weeks where it got up in the upper 70s or even low 80s, which unfortunately is possible around here, uh, you would get some new growth. And then if we had a hard freeze, you would, you would get significant damage to them. So I usually wait until toward the end of winter to do mine. Um, and so I would say early February is probably a good time. Uh, the chances of getting any significant growth and also having a very hard freeze start start to go down as we get further into February. So I think that's, okay, that's okay. probably good. I know some people that wait until spring and they even are pushing out and they cut them back. Uh, and you and you said salvias for for folks listening that have different kinds of salvias. Uh, different ones kind of respond differently. Uh, some of them are a little more of a succulent type of plant. Uh, others like Greg's sage or salvia gregii are woody subshrubs, and those we're just shearing them back a little bit, uh, not doing such a, okay. a heavy cutting on them. But uh, salvias are, the, I think, the best genus of plants in our flower gardens. Yeah, I, I, I really, I really enjoy them, and so do the the bees and the hummingbirds and lots of butterflies so yes great. that's true they're a good one a very good all one. right well thanks so much for answering my question i appreciate it all right thank you for the call going back to well our phone number if you'd like to call we still have some time for some calls is 845-5689 845-5689 give us a call it makes the show more interesting for us to be talking to you than me to be monologuing which we can do but i'd, I'd rather talk to you uh, so we mentioned uh, some of the root crops that could be planted uh, at this time. That's all good. And then our leafy greens. Uh, in addition to the coal crops or cruciferous greens like cabbage and, uh, well, I guess you call it a green in a sense, uh, but kale and, coal and um, um, collards would be uh, cruciferous greens. In addition to those, lettuce uh, can still be planted, of course. Spinach loves the cold weather, can still be planted. Uh, and even mustard uh, would be planted now, which technically is in that same cruciferous crop uh, group. So those are all things that you could be planting this time. I don't know, maybe I left one or two out uh, checking around on, the, on our official list here, but I think that pretty well covers it. Uh, if you're going to plant uh, onions and you want them to form bulbs, and we're not talking about the multiplying onions, but the bulbing onions, that needs to happen pretty soon. You can buy those little bundles of transplants at the grocery store or at the feed store or at the garden center. I see them all different kinds of places, but wherever you shop for your, your gardening supplies, uh, you usually are going to find onions this time of year. And you want to take those and plant them up with the bottom about an inch deep in the soil. Sometimes people look at them and say, how deep do I plant that thing? But if you put them an inch deep, the soil will help hold them up, uh, and that's, that's sufficient. Uh, and you want to water them in well when you plant them. And our goal on an onion is to get it growing as fast as we can, meaning as soon as we can and then as fast as it can grow. Uh, and the reason is that we want the biggest onion plant we can get very soon. And uh, because when an onion, when our day length starts to get longer, our nights become shorter, it signals the onion to quit growing just a scrawny plant and start to put a bulb on the bottom. And that bulbing initiation uh, is, is completely, well, primarily controlled by day length. And so if you have a, a, a scrawny onion plant with three leaves, you're going to get a bulb with three rings 
at the bottom because each ring is the base of one of the leaves. And so the bigger your plant, the more leaves, the more robust it is, the bigger your onion bulbs can be. And of course, a, a scrawny onion tastes just like a big, fat, round, giant, softball size onion. Uh, but you want to get more production out of your onions. And so that's the primary way you do it. And so we're dropping them in the ground and we're making sure and giving them small doses of nitrogen regularly over that period of time. Uh, don't just count on what's already in the soil, but supplement them a little bit. Keep them moist, but not soggy wet. Of course, they want full sunlight, which almost all our vegetables would prefer that. And uh, that would be the secret to success, I guess, if there is such a thing, on your onions. Uh, leeks can also be planted now. And both the onions and the leeks, by the way, are from transplants, not seed. If you wanted to seed leeks or onions, you need to do that in the fall. That's a whole other thing. I prefer to just do it from transplants uh, on the onions, and the leeks really could go either way. But again, do so soon because you need to get them growing. Uh, keep, keep a mulch around these to keep the um, weeds out. And uh, again, that would just be reducing competition to get faster growth and, and better results. Those are all things to be doing in the garden. If you've already got some of these crops growing, you want to fertilize them a little bit, especially the leafy greens and all the cruciferous vegetables, the blue-leafed vegetables we talked about. If it's a rooting vegetable, it needs nutrition, and it, it fertilizer can be helpful. But if you overdo it, you end up promoting top growth, and sometimes the, the root formation isn't as good. Uh, another thing with the rooting vegetables is to make sure they're thinned to the proper distance. So if you think about a carrot, you know, when it, depending on what kind of carrot you buy, you, uh, variety you've chosen, it's going to be, what, an inch and a quarter in diameter, somewhere in that range uh, when it's full-sized. And so you wouldn't want your plants to be any closer than that, and even to be a tad bit further than that would be better. Uh, so uh, that helps them to form a good root. Uh, I had some carrots last year where I went in to thin them and some of them I thinned properly and then I ran out of time, got busy, ran around being an extension agent and uh, it was much later when I came back and realized they hadn't all been thinned. The tops all looked vigorous, healthy, big, green, growing and but when I went to harvest those that were thinned early had nice sized roots and those that had been left crowded uh, the roots were still scrawny. And so excess nitrogen, lack of thinning, uh, both result in a, in a uh, nothing to write home about root on your root crops. Uh, that's true of radishes. That's true of turnips and beets. Uh, they, all, they all need an adequate amount of space. And just think about how big does a turnip get? How big does a beet get? That's how far they need to be apart at, at a minimum. Uh, and so encourage you to do that on uh, those particular vegetables. Well, our phone number is 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's go to the email. I think we've done that today. Uh, take some of the emails that have come in. Uh, Suzanne writes about wanting uh, a large shrub or small tree to plant in the middle of a 20-foot uh, wide circle 
that's a concrete, like a driveway around it. Uh, it's 20 feet wide, and she wants something that'll go in there that uh, it's a full sun spot, and she would like it to give a little bit of shade and maybe to have some fall or spring color. So Suzanne, I think thinking through the plants, um, I, I would have always said my first choice would have been a nice crepe myrtle that is selected as a variety to be one that gets about that size. Uh, but now with crepe myrtle bark scale uh, being such a problem on them here in the region, I'm just not as enthusiastic about planting them. I won't tell somebody don't plant one, but that's just a, a troublesome problem that we don't have a really good solution to. Now we have things that will kill it, but we don't have things that will kill it and not harm the bees that visit the flowers. And crepe myrtle is, a, is an important source of, uh, of nectar for bees in the summer time when crepe myrtles are blooming here in the Bryan College Station area. Um, I think my, my best choice would be a Chinese fringe tree. If you're in uh, to the native plants, there is a native fringe uh, that's native to East Texas, and then there's the Chinese fringe, which of course comes from Asia. Uh, the reason I like Chinese fringe better is because it it is more uh, floriferous when it blooms. The, the native fringe blooms and is beautiful, and there are a lot of good reasons to plant native plants, so I don't want to direct you away from those. Uh, but the blooms aren't as white and aren't as uh, large and fluffy as on a Chinese fringe. Uh, Chinese fringe are very white. It's a spring blooming tree. If you get a nice tree with tons of blooms, when you walk out, you can almost smell, I think of it as kind of a honey-like smell that's in the air. It's faint. It's not, you know, some plants have a gaudy, heavy fragrance, and uh, this one this one doesn't, but it does have a fragrance. It's kind of nice. Uh, and it, it stays at about that size. In fact, uh, 20 feet wide would be a pretty large uh, Chinese fringe. Uh, and, but uh, there's one in the dig garden up in North Bryan, the demonstration idea garden that the master gardeners have built and maintained. Uh, and you can go see it. It's in the middle of the garden in a circular area with path going around it. Uh, and in spring, go look at it. It's a very shaggy white bloom, real pretty. I think that may be one of the best plants to fit that bill. There's certainly a lot, certainly a lot of others that you could put in an area like that. Uh, but I think uh, if I were to pick you one, I, I believe I would go with that one. There's a little bit of a fall color to Chinese fringe, kind of a golden yellow fall color. Uh, I don't want to oversell it in terms of fall color. In fact, there's really nothing around here that uh, has awesome fall color and that you would want to plant. Some of our great fall color Texas plants like, um, uh, oh my gosh, Chinese tallow, the one that's the weed that goes everywhere, has awesome fall color. Would Don't want to plant that one. Uh, and the Bradford pear, the ornamental pears, uh, they're very popular. They have beautiful blooms, but the the long term on those is not good, and they don't last a long time. Uh, last and look good for a long time. They have good fall color, uh, and then the sweet gum, uh, popular in East Texas, uh, just isn't as happy here. Uh, but it does have uh, good fall color. All those are the sweet gums way too big for that area anyway. I think as I as I end the show today, I'm going to think of three more plants I should have told you, but that's what comes to comes to mind for right now. Our phone number, 845-5689, 845-5689, or 
by email, send me an email with photos of something to identify or to uh, diagnose, if you will, uh, at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And if we don't get to your email today, we'll certainly tackle it next week. Another email I wanted to talk about is uh, Carol has a Cuban Duranta, uh, and it looks like it's dead. Uh, the Cuban Duranta uh, is a, for those of you who know uh, Durantas, they're a, a plant with large kind of arching stems, and they have beautiful flowers that are typically kind of a bluish purple color. There's different varieties that have a different uh, characteristics. The flowers are followed by little yellow berries in a cluster. Uh, think of it sort of like a grape cluster, but the little uh, English pea-sized berries. Uh, that, that are also very attractive, uh, but they're not fully hardy here. Uh, they, they will, and a normal cold winter probably die to the ground in many winters. I won't say they'll never not die to the ground, but, uh, but that they're not fully dependably hardy. They typically, in Zone 8B where we are, they'll come back from the roots. And so if it dies to the ground, it'll often re-sprout. Uh, but that is kind of dependent on the winter. And so we're kind of on that edge where I don't know whether to uh, call it a perennial or not. And I would, I would lean toward, yes, it's a perennial. Uh, but the, the Cuban Duranta is one of the three or four varieties that have yellow uh, leaves. Not, not fully yellow, but yellow and green striped. Or some of them are yellow on the inside, green on the outside. Some cultivars are vice versa, yellow on the outside, green on the inside. Cuban Duranta has even more yellowing color, kind of everything from chartreuse greens to, to golden yellows in the flower. Very beautiful, very beautiful plant. So if it's, if it's not looking good, I suspect it's still alive at the base, and I would cut it off and I would wait and see. But you've got to be patient. That's one of those plants like uh, Pride of Barbados, uh, or some people call it Red Bird of Paradise, that is really slow to wake up. It'll be May before it even wants to talk to you about growing. And the Cuban Duranta, maybe not quite so much, but uh, don't give up on it until we get to May, I would say. Uh, it probably is going to come back out for you. In future years, when we have those kinds of plants, we can mulch them heavily at the base. And that way, even if a freeze kills them to that point, we still have a lot of buds at the base that will pop back out with vigorous growth because growth, they still have that nice root system to power uh, new growth coming back. So it's better to have that than to even plant a new plant because there's a lot of established roots that will get that, out, that old frozen back-to-the-ground plant uh, back in business really quick. So I wouldn't toss it. I would, I would, I would wait and see. And and Carol, if you don't mind, I would be very interested in hearing how it does for you. You know, we in in thirty plus years of doing this, I, I've seen a lot and heard from a lot of gardeners. But there's always surprises. There's always things that surprises me. And one of them was last year's freeze. If you would have told me that it was going to go to seven degrees. And Mexican heather, which is a warm season, little low-growing, bushy plant, would live through it. I would just said, no way. We, we can kill Mexican heather in a lot warmer than 7 degrees. But with that snow cover, uh, all of mine but one came back, back out. I mean, they looked dead, cut them off at the ground, 
and then here they come back when it warms up enough. So it's it's always learning in horticulture, and and that's one of the things I like about it. Uh, that it's not it's not like an engineering thing where uh, you know there's mathematical rules and and physics and things that apply, and you understand those and you, you can make it work. And I know we probably have. Uh, physics folks that are listening going, wait, 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 that's oversimplifying physics. Well, that's what I get for w getting outside my field. <laughs> but uh, with with life sciences, oh my gosh, it just, it, it, we have rules, we have guidelines, we have science, we have research, but it, things combine and, and they there can be more than one cause for a particular problem and, and more than one response to something that normally would be good advice that may turn out to be not so good advice due to factors that uh, we weren't including in it. Getting a little philosophical there, but anyway, that's life science, which is why I love it. One of the reasons why I love it. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, email gardensuccess at tamu. Edu. I have time for another call, maybe two, if they come pretty quickly uh, before we're out today. So if you got some questions, uh, feel free to give us a call. Uh, I, I talk a lot about vegetables, and, and I often um, don't go into flowers as much. And I'm going to, uh, we're going to be working on a, a chart uh, like the vegetable chart that, that uh, covers flowers as well. Uh, and I'm going to try to remember to include those more when I'm talking on this show. But we're in the cool season still. And so our most cold hardy of the cool season flowers, or let me say cool season color, because they're like uh, the ornamental cabbage and ornamental kale, they have ornamental foliage. Uh, we don't grow them for their flowers. We grow them for their ornamental foliage. Uh, and they are very, very hardy. They're among the hardiest. Pansies, which are beautiful flowering plants, and violas, their cousin, the viola, are also beautiful flowering plants. You can plant all those now. Uh, if you're willing to take a little bit of burn back or maybe to cover in a bad freeze yet to come, things like snapdragons and alyssum could also be planted now. There's a, a flower called stock that has a nice baby powder fragrance that most people aren't familiar with, but it's an old time, been a, around a long time for, for gardeners as a cool season plant. And there's a handful of other cool season flowers uh, and or foliage that, that we can grow. Uh, I like, of all those, I like violas best. I love alyssum also. Um, when you're planting flower beds, you can use something like alyssum as a mound around the outside of the bed, kind of a, almost a uh, confined ground cover, if you will, and then have the flowers uh, that come up a little bit above that. Uh, another good flower for cool season, and one of my favorite now, is dianthus. Uh, breeders have really changed dianthus a lot. They used to be short plants, uh, not so short, but squattier plants, that were you, had, you got to choose between a red and white, or pink and white. And now with the Amazon series and some others, we have some neon colors of purple and, and fuchsia and, and other, other shades. And they come in long stalks that aren't bad for cut flowers either, by the way. Uh, think of a carnation. That uh, dianthus and carnation are really close. And so uh, 
I would include Dianthus also now because we still have uh, several months where they can bloom and look good before it gets too hot. So those are all flowers to be planting now. If you're wanting to grow warm season vegetables or flowers, uh, we can be planting those indoors now. In fact, it, it, uh, we're well into the time for some of the things that take a little longer to produce. Some, some of our flowers may take, you know, eight to 12 weeks to produce a good transplant. Uh, others are going to be in the six to eight week range. Uh, certainly with our vegetables like tomatoes and peppers that they're in the six to eight week range. And with things that grow really quickly and don't like to be in a container long, that would be things like cucumbers and squash, for example. Uh, those uh, can be grown into something you can transplant out in two to four weeks. Uh, they, they do better if you don't leave them too long. Our last average frost date is around the end of, of uh, February. So depending on how average this year is in terms of that, uh, if you start planting in early to mid-March, that's a good time to get out some warm season things. We can plant a little bit later. But just like we said about the cool weather crops, uh, like the English peas and snow peas, I made the statement that we want them to grow and produce before it gets hot. Uh, well, that's also true of some of our warm season, but, but hot is a lot hotter temperature for those. So um, if you have uh, petunias, for example, or if you have the big slicer tomatoes uh, and you plant them, when it starts to get hot, they just start wimping out. Uh, maybe the tomatoes may live still, although they have a lot of pest and disease issues, but uh, the uh, fruit don't tend to set when it gets hot, and the, and the petunias the same way. So we also want to choose pretty fast varieties and get them in as early as we can for their particular range in order to have the best success. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. We are a call-in show every Thursday from 12 to 1 on KAMU-FM. We want to thank those of you listening and also those of you from outside the area. Uh, you can also listen to the current show live or to past shows by going to the KAMU-FM website and looking for the show Garden Success. So thank you for being a listener. Thank those of you who called today for being callers. And we look forward to a lot of fun in the garden as we finally get past this winter weather in about another month or so and get into some really wonderful spring weather. Take time right now out in the garden to do the things that help get ready for that by building your soil, doing your trimming back of plants that need trimming. And we'll see you again uh, next Thursday. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley. Garden Success is brought to you in part by the Arbor Gate, featuring unusual plants, artisan-created decorative pieces, and a constantly changing array of items that bring beauty, comfort, and even flavor to the home and garden. Arbor Gate, 15635 FM 2920, Tomball, Texas, 281-351-8851 or arborgate.com. Garden Success is also brought to you by the Farm Patch, 3519 South College Avenue in Bryan, 979-822-7209.